0: Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you, so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. Debates over the power, influence, and direction of technology and innovation play a large role in our policy discussions and the news cycle these days. We have seemingly obscure debates over particular sections of regulatory law, and we have awesome and maybe occasionally scary illustrations of the power of artificial intelligence. Some of the most well-known people in America are tech entrepreneurs, while one of the new favorite pastimes of elected officials is to call for regulation and uh, do some fear-mongering with those tech leaders. Enter the three groups we're going to speak with today, the Discovery Institute, the Foundation for American Innovation, and the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State. Each of these brings a free market perspective to the debates over technology and how policymakers and the general public might think about these emerging issues. I'm excited to share their work with you, so let's jump in. Today we're fortunate to begin by talking with one of the early pioneers in connecting technological innovation with the value of markets and capitalism. George Gilder started his career in politics as a speechwriter before becoming a leading scholar on the causes underlying wealth and poverty, and then he drifted into technology during the 80s. That ultimately led to his co-founding the Discovery Institute, which is our first featured group today. Discovery, among other things, has a special interest in exploring how science and technology can advance free markets, propel new discoveries, illuminate public policy, and support human dignity and the metaphysical foundations of a free society. Uh, George, I dare say you are. well ahead of the curve amongst a lot of conservatives back in the 70s and 80s, seeing the potential of what technology could do and its effect on the country. Why do you think that is that you were so far forward looking then?
1: Well, in the process of writing Wealth and Poverty, I discovered the microchip. And uh, it seemed to me that it would transform the world as much as any of the supply side economics that I was developing and converged with supply-side economics because it would change uh, supply from something laboriously extracted from the Earth to a uh, realm of ideas and imagination and creativity. And so uh, it seemed to me that uh, you know to put uh, a computer on a grain of sand uh, Tied to worldwide webs of glass and light was uh, a unique breakthrough in the history of the human race, and so I've I've now written about fifteen books about technology that all stem from that essential insight that I had at that point.
0: That makes so much sense. That was an exciting time, and you know here we are just wallowing in all these technological innovations, but it was it was much different back then. I mean it was yeah. the the Hardware, the groundbreaking stuff was all going on. It was really, really neat. And we could spend a whole podcast talking about your unique history and all the different things that you've done. But let's zip forward a little bit to the founding of the Discovery Institute in 1991. What was the goal in founding Discovery? And curious how that's changed over time.
1: To celebrate human creativity on the frontiers of technology. This is what... Bruce Chapman, my college roommate and I, and Bruce Chapman was he, he was Secretary of State of Washington State and the City Council, C- he was a great political leader who worked, went on to work with Reagan. And we wanted to have an institute devoted to the to the saga of human discovery and creation in the image of their, of our Creator.
0: And how has that changed over time? I imagine you started with a fairly narrow issue set, and now you take on all sorts of things.
1: I I don't think so. I think it's it's, from the beginning, this was our essential vision, and we've carried it through. It's manifested across broad ranges of issues. I mean, wealth and poverty... uh, delve deeply into the sources of poverty and the breakdown of families and and uh, uh, corruption and the moral order and all these issues continue to pervade Discovery's mandate and portfolio.
0: And now you aren't running things day to day anymore, but you do still serve as the director of the Technology and Democracy Project. So what sort of re- research is that Project focused on.
1: Well, we we are. Uh, I I feel all my work is is ultimately uh, devoted to discovery and and uh, enhances discovery and discovery enhances me. So I don't I don't separate my life into a bunch of compartments any more than I separate my. Uh, work into uh, various specializations. Uh, Discovery is differentiated from uh, most other uh, think tanks in that it has a, an overall vision of the universe. And uh, and that uh, is manifested in everything it does. Uh, Carver Mead, who was one of the founding figures in the semiconductor industry, he, he's he's addressed and concluded all our, climaxed all our COSM conferences. And he has now achieved a breakthrough in physics that uh, vastly simplifies all the calculations of physics, obviates of the complexities of general relativity and and shows a unified universe, uh, not a relativistic uh, material universe, but a but a universe that is unified by simple uh, principles of f- physics and engineering that he has pioneered. This is just an example of. How all our various programs work together to serve a particular vision and ideal,
0: and his idea of that interconnectedness, you're saying, is kind of at the core of how you view the vision of what you work on.
1: Yes, it's. A, I'm just saying that my work, uh, the work on the homelessness which is winning prizes and the work on artificial intelligence at the Bradley Center, the work on intelligent design, the work on uh, physics and technology. It's it's all a a unity. It's a a synthesis of uh, human thought and achievement.
0: That is a that's a nice synopsis. Now that makes sense. Well, you mention artificial intelligence. You do have a whole center, the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. Obviously, that's a big issue nowadays, and I get the sense that Discovery takes a kind of cautiously optimistic view of AI. Is that fair? What is your take? What is Discovery Institute's take on AI?
1: I'm not cautious. I think uh, AI is a tremendous uh, Advance. It's it's the next step in computer science. It's not different from previous steps. I, I think much of Silicon Valley has hallucinations about the actual achievements of AI, AI. AI is a development in computer science, probably smaller than some of than the discovery of the microchip was a bigger. Uh, development than uh, the development of ai and actually ai is enabled by advances in microchips and and will be further revitalized by the new transition in microchips toward uh, the use of of carbon materials uh, moving from silicon to graphene which is a new paradigm that i'm studying at, at Discovery and uh, in all my activities.
0: Well, I'm glad there's some good, hard research coming out on AI from you all, and in an optimistic way. And that's an interesting take that it, it's revolutionary as it is. It's still not the most revolutionary thing. That... Yeah,
1: it's it's not. And it's not, it's not a mind. It's not going to usurp human intelligence. We understand the principles that underlie all computer technology. And uh, because we understand this, we uh, grasp that AI is not a threat to the human uh, capabilities or the human race, as uh, some uh, overwrought observers have been claiming.
0: So one final question as we close out, you're, you're always monitoring what's going on in technology. Other than AI being such a big issue, is there some other big technological debate or innovation that you think is going to be a key piece of the discussion in the next few years?
1: Well, I believe that, that uh, what I call the nanocosm, which is in which this new material called graphene it's a new carbon material embodies bodies will uh, be as transformative as the silicon revolution that I encountered back in 1980. But the basic challenge, I think, is uh, governments around the world are trying to nationalize technology under industrial policies. And when they do that, they always... Uh, Subsidize the technologies of the past, and uh, and the incumbent companies uh, all ally with government to suppress the technologies of the future. And uh, I wrote a book called Life After Google. It was a modest worldwide bestseller. So, uh, and Life After Google uh, is uh, an entrepreneurial life with. Uh, where new technologies always surprise us. And technologies that everybody believes are dominant in Washington are unlikely to be the technologies that actually prevail in the world. Washington, contrary to their claims, did not have anything to do with the invention of the microchip that was uh, very significant.
0: I think that's a... Good point and a good point to end on, and glad that Discovery Institute is out there helping policymakers find a, a different path through all of it. So uh George Gilder, really glad we could talk today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for the interview. I appreciate it.
0: I have long been a fan of Lincoln Network, which was for years a key player in connecting the world of Silicon Valley to the sausage making of Washington, often serving as a much needed translator for both sides in various policy debates. As of the end of April, I have to get used to Lincoln's new name, the Foundation for American Innovation. And joining me to talk about FAI, nay, Lincoln, is its president, Zach Graves, who has spent years enmeshed in these debates and discussions on technology and innovation. Zach, first, maybe a common question. There's two sides of a debate in what Silicon Valley is. A, it's bereft of any kind of conservatives, but maybe there's some libertarian tendencies. Who, who's out there? And is anybody kind of on our free market side?
2: Thanks, Peter. Yeah, I mean, I think Silicon Valley has long had a a reputation for being libertarian, and in some ways that's true, and in some ways that's kind of a myth. Obviously, if you zoom out and look at the overall politics of California or the Bay Area, it's overwhelmingly to the left. I think Pew rates it as San Francisco is the most liberal big city in America. If you look at campaign donations from... Members of the big tech companies overwhelmingly to to Democrats, but the the culture of the people who are building things and founding things has also deep roots in kind of libertarian ideas about regulation, and uh, also you know going back further, you know close ties to uh, the defense industry to building the chips that support the Apollo program and ICBMs and Defense contractors were originally what helped, you know, lure talent away from uh, Boston into, you know, L.A. and San Francisco uh, in the 60s. And so, like, really, like, there's an interesting history there that is is both kind of like elements of libertarian and elements of not. Uh, another really key factor there is their, you know, in the Bay Area in particular, a lot of influence that's downstream of like the nineteen sixties counterculture. And while that's not like what we would consider Ron Paul libertarian, there is like uh, was a civil libertarian, left libertarian underpinning particularly on issues like government surveillance and privacy and who owns your data and who owns your compute and how are you using that that you know was very much ingrained uh, even in in the last generation of big tech founders and even if they're not explicitly you know, Republican voters, some are, um, there, there has been that, that core. I think some of that has been eroding uh, in recent years, particularly as, as they become big public companies and respond to the uh, incentive structures of big international public companies.
0: Well, let's jump into Foundation for American Innovation. Define the mission. Tell us what its goal is.
2: Yeah, so our mission is to develop technology, talent, and ideas that support a better, freer, and more abundant future. Uh, so like thinking about that, we're definitely on the techno-optimist side, which lately is not where uh, everyone on the right is necessarily. One of my colleagues uh, used to used to joke that, you know, the Democrats and Republicans are just arguing about what year they want to go back to, you know, for... conservatives maybe it's 1950 for democrats maybe it's 1990 you know um and i think that's like the wrong the wrong view there are certainly new uh challenges negative externalities that you get with new technological innovations but you know on net they have uh made humanity much more prosperous they've enabled human flourishing in new ways Uh, they've made us healthier and uh, you know, the, the, the amount of information you can access instantly is fantastic compared to what our great grandfathers have. And I think, you know, that's a story we need to tell, particularly in the context of, uh, you know, going way back in human history, like we've had a lot of stagnation. That was the norm for, for most of our, you know, history. It's only been in the last couple hundred years that things have really, you know, taken the hockey stick up, uh. And had sort of massive improvements. And tech has been a huge driver of that. At the same time, there are some technologies that are very different than others, like the the downsides of building an app that you know takes us from one place to another or delivers sandwiches, you know, that's pretty easy to predict and control. You know, uh, but if you look back at when they uh, developed the Fritz Haber process, you know, the nitrogen synthesis really essential to make fertilizer and help feed the world but it can also make bombs and that uh, it turns out uh, enabled things like uh, world war ii to be much more destructive right so we always have to be careful about evaluating these kinds of risks but the bias i think should be towards innovation and should be towards harnessing these tools to advance human ends and part of doing that in a responsible way is to have a strong kind of principled framework for how you approach uh different different types of technologies and how you root them in like human values so that's how we try to think about these things uh particularly in our our policy work and uh i think that's you know kind of a middle position and where you know, the, the debate is these days, right, on the right, where you have many people who have become suddenly much more hostile to technology. And I think others who are, you know, taking a very kind of Wild West approach, which, you know, I think has the, the, the danger of also just inviting scrutiny and reaction, which itself, I think, can undermine what your your goal is
0: let's talk briefly about the name change. It's not a small thing for an organization to do. Does it signal the organization is going in some new direction or, or what does it mean?
2: Part of the challenge for us was uh, we communicate with a lot of different audiences. You know, we're trying to bridge multiple cultures, you know, East Coast and West Coast, academic and industry and government. And really, I, we felt, uh, you know, after conversations with our board that we need a name that communicates immediately kind of what we're about, what we, you know, what are our values, what do we work on? And, uh, you know, in in that sense, I think we felt it was time for an update and we're really excited about the new name. We think it it tells a lot about what we do. And we also do several different things that are the same things as we've been doing before. Um, So our mission is very much aligned. Uh, It's just the name that has changed and our core Areas of work continue to be uh, kind of in three buckets. One is a boutique think tank that works on policy issues at the intersection of governance, technology, and national security. Another is a team of you know, kind of what on the left would be called public interest technology, but it basically means technology that you know. VCs aren't going to fund because you're going to make money on it. (laughs) But for us, that's a lot of stuff in ed tech and innovation and government modernization and stuff that makes, uh, you know, government more efficient and accountable that makes uh, access to, you know, charter schools easier for parents that serves a kind of real key kind of values oriented purpose. And then our final thing is our original uh, uh, focus, which is events and convenings and building this, you know, kind of what we call translation infrastructure between the you know, founders and builders and then the policymakers and regulators.
0: Well, let's let's talk about that for a second, because I've always seen that as one of the really great things that, that uh, Lincoln, now FAI, does in terms of just bringing people together. And as you say, these disparate voices to actually have a conversation. What are the results you've seen of being able to get such disparate voices in the same room together.
2: Yeah, I think it's a unique thing. I mean, there's not a lot of people in this space who, who even have sort of strong penetration in and, and, and all these communities. I think there are a couple. But beyond that, I think it's important not to confuse sort of the perspective of Silicon Valley, kind of putting that in air quotes, like with you know what you get in D.C. I think the even though tech spends you know, is one of the top spenders on, on influence and lobbying in Washington, D.C., and also increasingly in state capitals, the perspective you're getting from the large incumbents is not the perspective you're getting from, uh, you know, the VCs and the founders and the builders. Like, those are about, you know, defending the interests of existing existing companies. And sometimes those are, are good issues to fight on. But, uh, you know, what we need to be thinking about also is what policies will enable the next round of trillion dollar American tech companies to come into existence or that will uh, in particular enable things not just in the world of of bits and software and apps but things that will enable you know new innovations in the world of atoms which can be much more difficult you know there are a lot of uh, you know regulatory thickets and things you know where if you want to build a Uh, something in health tech, if you want to build something in synthetic biology, if you want to build, you know, like Elon Musk is trying to do, uh, you know, tunnel tunnels under cities to address uh, traffic and and transportation or supersonic flight. Uh, These are things where you have to proactively engage in in addressing regulatory challenges and you have much higher capital expenditures. And these things, I think, aren't the low hanging fruit, but really uh, important, uh, but not salient in the sort of DC tech policy conversation, which is very much absorbed with what the sort of yesterday's big incumbents are are concerned about. Um, and so I think it's important that if you're a congressional staffer or a think tanker, you know, you don't get absorbed in, in what the sort of incumbent conversation is and that you devote some amount of time also to thinking about you know, what, what's the, you know, what's in the window of possibility for the future.
0: So as you mentioned, several of the big issues and debates and discussions that are going to be happening from transportation to, to some of these others. So as you and your team look ahead to the rest of 2023 and then getting into a presidential cycle, what issues on the tech side do you think are going to be the most hotly debated and, and discussed?
2: So we just came out of a, a kind of big push around antitrust big tech regulation there are some incremental reforms that that happened out of that but largely the really big uh aggressive bills largely coming from the left with some bipartisan support uh you know failed to to move and i think there's you know much less interest in that issue seeing what the sort of political reality of it is and i think increasingly the 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 issue that's going to be big is this new wave of generative artificial intelligence applications. You have your chat GPT, if people played with that. If they haven't, I think they definitely should. It's a really cool, impressive technology. Or uh, generative images like stability or mid-journey or uh, kind of a little bit more below the radar. They're really good um, voice-to-text and text-to-voice AI apps. A, A huge... Set of things that are going to be really powerful and really transformative that will, uh, you know, take a while to really fully deploy. Uh, we're very excited about them and and spending you know a lot of time working on it.
0: Well, that's great, and I, like I said, have been a fan of all the work that you all are doing for a long time. And so, Zach Graves, keep up the the good work, and look forward to seeing where this develops. Thanks, Peter. Founded in 2017, the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State is a university-based center focused on exploring the ways key institutions in society, like business and government and community, ignite economic growth and increase opportunity for everyone to improve their lives. Technology and innovation is one of the three pillars of its works, and here with me to explore what all that means is CGO's Executive Director, Chris Koopman. Chris, let's start with the big picture. Tell us what the Center for Growth and Opportunity is and, and what it's trying to achieve.
3: Yeah, so as you, as you mentioned, we're a university-based research center, uh, really focused on producing not just long-form research, but research that can be easily consumed by policymakers with a bias toward action. So at, at the end of the day, uh, most of our research is, is produced with an eye toward a very particular uh, issue that we're trying to solve and with a mind toward what resources can we provide to policymakers to help them solve that problem. So very much so, our, our, our research isn't just living in the ivory tower, but it's, it's an effort to find those voices throughout the academy. We have a network of nearly 500 scholars now working across the country and in a few international uh, that are, are, are entrepreneurial and, and by partnering with them, we're amplifying those voices and finding opportunities to get the best ideas into the right hands to to really jumpstart economic growth, solve some of our biggest challenges, and and provide a a positive vision for the future. So maybe I'm just cynical, but you
0: say you have a bias towards action. So why are you housed at a university?
3: (laughs) Yeah, so this is something we explain to academics all the time when we we, we go to talk to them about a a particular research question that maybe they answered 15 years ago. And they say, "Well, well, I already wrote about that. Uh, and, and my response typically is, uh, well, if just getting it published in an academic journal was enough, then we'd have all of the right public policies in place. Because oftentimes what, what we find at least is me- much of the work that we're doing isn't really generating new ideas. We do a lot of work in new ideas, but a good chunk of the work that we're doing is taking those known truths in economics in particular and translating them in a, in a consumable Action-oriented way for for policymakers. So I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, higher ed is stagnated, and the incentives for many academics is not to see their work get put into action, but to see their work get published. And so we operate sort of at the intersection of both of those worlds, policy and, and the academy, to ensure that the best ideas that are being produced in the academy, quite frankly, are are put in a in, in a easily consumable packaged uh, item that policymakers can do something with, as opposed to simply uh, just hoping that they'll read the academic journal and, and, and do something about it. Okay, I'll buy that.
0: I'll still be cynical about <laughs> universities, though. So, so you've got three centers, three main focuses, foci, uh, that you have there, one on tech and innovation, but you also have centers on environmental stewardship and one on immigration. It's three silos that, frankly, are probably underserved in a lot of think tanks, so it's a really interesting combination. Maybe we can talk about the other two. But on the tech and innovation side, it looks like you touch on a ton of issues. I mean, right now, the three most current pieces on your website are, are relate to drone flight and property rights, and then you've got privacy, and you've got space flight. So what is the through line for all of this on the tech and innovation side?
3: I would say the through line isn't even just through tech and innovation, but does bring together our energy and environmental work and our immigration work. Uh, and that is really the, this concept of abundance. Uh, you look at the last 35, 40 years, hey, you, heck, you could go back even 50 years. Uh, we, have, we have been suffering through nearly a half century of, of economic stagnation, right? We had from 1950 to, to 1970, the point in time everybody talks about booming economic growth, we averaged like 4% economic growth year over year, right? 1970 to 1990, uh, things slowed down. We're at like 3%. And from like 2000 to today, we're at like 2% economic growth. Right uh, during that time, the tech and innovation sector has been probably the single most productive aspect uh, of our economy. Uh, while the rest of the economy is grinding to a halt, tech and innovation in America uh, has taken off, and I think that's because a, a, a vision was was cast in the early '90s that said we are not going to, as a, as a as a as a government, we are not going to meddle in this in this sector, and and so I do think the, the through line for for drones, for space flight, for um, for privacy, for content moderation, all the work that we're doing in and around tech and innovation is how do we ensure not only that we can keep our current momentum and, and, and and continue to achieve abundance, not just in this sector, but how can we use this as a launching off point to vision cast for an abundant future outside of tech and innovation? You think environmental stewardship, for example, or energy uh, Peter is, is one in which, you know, we we have more or less been uh, been operating under a, a a very constrained mindset with respect to our public policies over the last 40 years, and I think much of this is 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 uh, is typified in, in the idea that all of the innovation and in energy in in America has been focused on how can we get more out of less energy, right? How can we consume less? How can we do like in F, in essence, we're pulling the fuel out of out of the American economy. That's an innovation issue. That isn't necessarily an environment issue. It's an innovation issue. I think there are a ton of lessons to be learned from tech and innovation on how we can improve our, our energy sector. Uh, but quite frankly, we can't take those lessons if we lose all the ground in tech and innovation. And so I do think like in some ways, really what we're trying to do is is not only continue to support this culture of permissionless innovation within the the tech and innovation sector, but use that as a a catalyst for economic growth across our entire economy. I appreciate that through line of of abundance,
0: not just through the tech and innovation, but through all the things you do. I think that's a great, it's always nice when there's a clear lens that people are coming at these things through. And I don't think every group necessarily has that something that's so so pithy to say in such a short way. So I want to talk about your tech poll, because this is something that, seems really unique to you, seems like a place where you're actually really taking advantage of being in a university center, something you've been doing for a while. Talk to us about what it is and and maybe some of the the findings. What are the trends there
3: on on what you're seeing? So we started the tech poll in, in the fall of, of 2020 is when we began polling uh, peoples. Uh, their, uh, I, the question started with, who do you trust with your data? <laughs> is really the question we started with in the tech poll, and we asked about a whole host of uh, a whole host of, of, of private sector uh, companies. We asked about different levels of government, uh, and we've continued to ask that question again and again of people, so we can track over time how how, how views on particular tech companies have evolved over the last three years. And in, in a big piece of this, uh, isn't isn't just for us to understand where people's views on tech lie. A big part of this was for us to help policymakers understand just how flippant the the American uh, voter is when it comes to their view on on tech companies and government for that matter, uh, Peter. So here's here's a couple of things that, that have stood out and over time we've added more more questions to it. We certainly we as as interest in ant- the use of antitrust to to go after big tech, has, has continued to grow. We've been polling on that for several years. So we, we, we've, we've got a lot of, uh, of different pieces to it. And you can find it at the cgo.org forward slash tech poll, I believe, for any of your listeners that are interested. Uh, they, they, can, they can go there and, and find the actual tech poll. Uh, but here are some things that jumped out right off the bat is um, an overwhelming number of Americans do agree that, that you know they, they have concerns that tech companies have become too big. And I think you hear this time and time again. People are concerned about the size of tech companies and policymakers across the aisle. We can just stick with the Senate, for example, but both Ted Cruz and Amy Klobuchar um, have both used a, a similar talking point when putting forth uh, antitrust policies to go after large tech companies. It just turns out that like the, the distrust uh, and the interest in the size of tech companies among the American electorate was not licensed for policymakers to do something. It turns out far fewer Americans are interested in government doing something about it than they are in the actual size. So from our polling, we can pull out things like that. Like, hey, yes, you may be seeing that Americans are distrustful of, of tech companies, uh, but they also are distrustful of government with their data. Uh, yes, Americans may be interested in, uh, or may have a growing concern about the size of tech companies, but they aren't interested in the government Taking aggressive antitrust action to simply break big companies up, and then the last thing that's really jumped out in in, in the polling, and that's over the course of several years that we found, is there's just been this sustained base of people who are interested in breaking up tech companies for no other purpose than that they are tech companies, right? So we asked this question for a number of years now. We've been we've been asking people in our in our polling, um, would your life be better off or worse off if the following companies were broken up? And this includes Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, TikTok. Zoom, Facebook, um, and, and Twitter, uh, among several others. But I just want to I, I, I want to focus in on on Zoom and Twitter, for example, is that you have like 20 percent of Americans, uh, sort of a sustained uh, group of Americans. 20 that's a lar- I, that's a large number, right? <laughs> of Americans have said their life their life would be uh, would be better off if Zoom were broken up. Now let's think about that practically. So Zoom only offers one product, right? Uh, and and it isn't clear to me that Zoom meets any of the, the the definitions, even the broadest definitions, of a monopoly, in in video services, right? Um, so in, in some ways, what what we are what we're capturing in our in our polling, and the, and the same thing has happened with Twitter. Twitter offers one product, and Twitter certainly isn't a monopoly. Twitter is a very small market share when it comes to the the, the total size of social media. Uh, and in both those instances, both those examples, you have a ton of Americans, right, um, who have said, our lives would be better off if those companies were broken up. Our fi- like our takeaway from this and what we've been explaining to policymakers is, look, like there are people who just want to use antitrust as a punitive tool for companies that they don't like. Zoom is the reason why... Uh, People feel like they can't get away from the office anymore, right? Uh, Twitter is the reason why like Thanksgiving stinks with your in-laws, right? Because the opinions we've all been posting, right? So like there may be other there may be other reasons why people don't like these companies, but policymakers should be very careful about how they're interpreting public opinion around these policies when they are in fact trying to use that public opinion to justify why they're doing. Very specific things in these sectors. So I think our, our 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 polling is isn't just to track where do where do Americans um, feel on on these things. Uh, it's also to help policymakers understand that like, hey, it, it may be um, it may be helpful to understand where Americans fall on a particular issue, but it certainly isn't like dispositive of what ought to be done.
0: I can't imagine even one in five Americans use Zoom on a daily basis. I mean, you probably do. I do, but. It, that's that's wild. That's a really really interesting finding. And you're right. I think probably shows more about people's visceral feelings towards the broader sector than any any particular belief in actually being
3: broken up. Yeah, and and other things that have jumped out interesting from our polling that we're just like, hey, like again, using as sort of cautionary for for policymakers is you you look after the the 2020 election. So immediately following the 2020 election but before anything had happened. We polled right before and right after the 2020 election. Uh, we, asked, we asked a bunch of questions about the tech companies, about government, about privacy, um, about the use of antitrust, um, all sorts of things. And, um, and one of the things that jumped out um, to us in that polling before and after 20, 2020 is almost immediately after the election, but before anything had happened, right? Inauguration occurs, wait, you know, 90 days after. Um, almost immediately after the election, Uh, Democrats suddenly started to trust government again and Republicans did not. And it, it was just interesting for us to be like nothing substantively has changed in that moment. The president is still the same. Right. Congress hasn't changed. Nothing has changed. And yet all of a sudden, because of an election, views not only on government, but on these tech companies also flipped. And you saw the same thing happen with people who follow or don't follow the news. The more apt you are to follow political news, the more apt you are to have a negative view of certain companies. Where it's like if you don't follow politics and you judge, let's say Google for example, based on the services Google provides when you're looking for a restaurant or you're trying to find a plumber, um, turns out you you think your life is way better off with Google. If you are a person who follows the political news all the time, you're you're more likely to, to to think that that your life is worse off with Google. Um, so these are just interesting things that, that we've that we've pulled out to say like hey, you know, po- po- in some ways the big tech big tech or the tech lash is a beltway problem created created by beltway people. Uh, I think the further away you get from politics, the less apt you are to judge these companies based on political views and more apt to judge them on the services they provide.
0: Well, and probably helpful that you all are way out in Utah doing some of this work and get a different lens on it. And and we're glad you're doing it. Chris Koopman, this is great. We're really excited to see how the Center for Growth and Opportunity uh,
3: grows. Thank you, Peter.
0: If there are two words to take away from these three conversations, they're probably optimism and abundance. Far from the heavy narrative of doom and gloom we hear so much when it comes to technology, the work being done by the Discovery Institute, Foundation for American Innovation, and Center for Growth and Opportunity all highlight a sense of, well, discovery, innovation, growth, and opportunity. It doesn't mean there aren't debates to be had but as zach pointed out we often frame those debates in terms of yesterday's wars rather than the possibilities of tomorrow the tech debates aren't always actually about technology either they're about broader social changes and trends with technology getting the blame i think all three of our guests today would challenge us to approach these debates with more optimism about what is possible and a bit of skepticism about predictions of catastrophe. Well, thank you so much for listening today. What is your take on techno-optimism? Do you share it? Email me at tellmemore at donorstrust.org and let me know what you think about this or, or anything you've heard on any of these Giving Ventures podcasts. We will be back soon with some more great topics, and until then, we thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon.